But again, this morning, we're going to take our attention and turn it to the book of Colossians chapter 3 in a message I've entitled, The Hope of a Father. This young boy began his life with the classic handicaps and disadvantages that we have become familiar with. His mother was a strong, large, dominating woman who found it difficult to love. She had three different husbands. The second husband, whom she had divorced, she beat him up regularly. His father was her third husband, and while she was pregnant with the boy, he died of a heart attack. So he, from his earliest childhood, had no father. She gave him also no love, no discipline, no training, and nothing close to the motherly affection that we would hope to see. He was rejected from his earliest childhood on all fronts. He was poor, he was untrained, he was unloved. In his school file as a 13-year-old, the school psychologist remarked, he doesn't understand the meaning of the word love. During adolescence, other boys his age, they'd have nothing to do with him, and the girls his age, well, they shunned him. Although he had a very high IQ, he failed academically, so much so that he ended up dropping out of school. By the age of 17, he had lived at 20 different addresses. He thought perhaps he could find acceptance somewhere else, the United States Marine Corps. After all, the Marines advertised that they turned boys into men, and he desperately wanted to be a man. But he found there the same rejection as the fellow Marines ridiculed him. He fought back, he resisted authority, and he was court-martialed and subsequently thrown out of the Marines. And so he ends up, a young man in his early 20s, friendless and shipwrecked. Once again, he thought he could run from his problems, so he went to another country, went to a foreign country, hoping he could find some, accept, some acceptance there, but he found none. Eventually, however, he was able to convince a woman in that country to marry him because he promised her the prospects of America and then moving back there. She did come back with him, and she bore him two children, but she soon developed the same contempt for him that everyone else in his life had. Instead of her being his greatest ally in a bitter world, she became his most vicious opponent. His wife bullied him. In fact, on one occasion, she actually locked him in the bathroom because of his misbehavior. He tried to make it on his own. She had forcibly caused him to leave, and he tried to make it as a separated man, but he was terribly lonely. After days of solitude and separation, he finally came home and has begged his wife to take him back into the household. He was able to scrape up some money meagerly $78 and when he begged her to take him back he presented the $78 and said you can spend this money however you see fit she ridiculed him and laughed at him as at his meager attempt to be anything like a manly masculine provider so he was broken humiliated completely dejected and so he spent that evening weeping bitterly over his miserable state of existence. The next morning, he got up, 
went to the garage, pulled down a rifle, and he went to the third floor of the building where he worked in a long string of odd jobs. And from that third floor window on November 22nd, 1963, he sent two bullets from that rifle into the head of President John F. Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, the rejected, unlovable, fatherless failure, killed the very man who more than any other man on the planet embodied who he wanted to so desperately be. Successful, attractive, wealthy, and having the affection of a family. Now Lee Harvey Oswald's story stands out among fatherless stories because of the infamy of his last day on the planet. But it's a fact that his miserable life, his fatherless life, is paralleled by thousands upon thousands of children that have undergone just as much lack of love, just as much lack of personal guidance, just as much turmoil and hostility we just simply don't know them because their lives didn't end up the way his did. And what makes this truth so tragic is how this reality is so far removed from God's design, so far removed from God's order. You see, there is an intended hope for children that would come from the presence from the engagement of a godly father. And that's why this morning's text and subject matter is so applicable to where we find ourselves today in our country, in our community, in our church. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, just one verse, verse 21. It's only nine words in the English, but it's going to be our focal text for this morning. They are powerfully profound words. Here's what the Bible says. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Let me show you a few more translations of this verse. The New American Standard Bible says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The NIV says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And J.B. Phillips' paraphrase says, Fathers, don't overcorrect your children or they will grow up feeling inferior and frustrated. You may remember that the Apostle Paul actually wrote something very similar to the church in Ephesus, both Colossians and Ephesians written in similar time frame. And so the church in Ephesus, he wrote something similar, but just a little different. He said this in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whereas Colossians gives the negative consequence, lest they be discouraged, Ephesians 6, 4 gives the positive instruction. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Well, our focal text today, Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, you'll notice in that one sentence there are two commas, which creates three phrases, which is perfect for a preacher because now I've got three points on my sermon. And it's taken from those three phrases divided by the two commas. Here's the first thing I want us to consider from Colossians 3, 21. Number one, the role of, of hopeful fathers. The role 
of hopeful fathers. We believe, based on the authority of God's word, that God has a design for the family, that God has a design for the home. And much of the turmoil and much of the issues and much of the chaos we see in society today is because families, if you want to call them that, are living far outside the design that they were created with God. God has a role for marriages. And God's unique roles for men and women in the home are designed and intended by him to complement each other. Genesis puts it this way, that a woman was found for him, a mate was found for him who was fit. Husbands and wives fit together. They're intended to complement each other. But here's what happens. Those aspects of our design as men and women, masculinity and femininity that are intended to complement each other, when sin enters the picture, when we live according to our fallen flesh, those complementary designs turn into contradictory designs, not if you're with me. This is what happens in the family. And so part of the goal of the new birth, part of the goal of being born again, part of the goal of our ongoing training and discipleship and instruction as a church is that we can root out those fleshly patterns that exist in us because of our fallenness and that we can live within the design that God has created us to live in. So what is the role of the husband and the father in the home? Well, from here in Colossians chapter 3, from Ephesians chapter 6, and from numerous other places throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike, it is clear that fathers are designed by God to be the primary leader of the home. They are intended by God to be the head of the home. Now, what this does not mean, let me qualify this, does not mean that fathers are the dictators and everybody else in the home is, is considered to be his loyal subjects. What it does not mean is that fathers in the home are masters and everybody else in the home are his slaves. It does not mean that fathers are the drill sergeants and everyone else is but privates who ought to jump to his every command and order. That's not what it means to be the head of the household in a biblical God-designed marriage. There are three aspects of what it means to be the head of a household based on biblical truth I want us to consider. First of all, the head always goes first. The head always goes first. The head of the household is intended to be the role model for everyone else. He sets the tone. The head of the household is intended to establish the priorities under God's word. And as such... The head of the household seeks God's wisdom, prays through issues and situations. He gently instructs the family in the direction that he should go. And friends, if the father is not functioning as a healthy head, guess what? The entire family suffers. This, of course, does not mean the father does not seek the advice of his family, chiefly his bride, his wife, but the head goes first. The head leads the way. There's a second thing we know about the head of the household. The head leads by service. The head leads by service. Headship of a family, as portrayed in the Bible, is demonstrated most profoundly in Christ's leadership. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, describes this metaphor of the marriage being emblematic of the relationship between Christ and his church. And how did Christ lead the church? He served the church. The theme of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 44. For the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And friends, this is the model of being a husband. This is the model of being a father, that we are to be like Christ. We're to be the Christ figure in the home. He's not looking to see what he can get from the family. His intention is what he can give to the family. The head of the household always goes first. The head of the household leads by service. Notice this third thing. The head always takes responsibility. The head takes personal responsibility. Every time I have the opportunity and occasion to lead a young couple through premarital counseling, some of you are in this room, and I've led you through premarital counseling. One of the things I say to the the husband-to-be, to the groom, is I'll say, here's what you need to understand about leading a home biblically. Everything that goes bad in the household Everything that goes awry, it's not going to all be your fault, but it's all your responsibility. It's not all going to be blamed on you, but it's all your responsibility. And we see this, again, chiefly in Jesus Christ. Is our sin Jesus' fault? No, it's not his fault. Did he make our sin his responsibility? Yes, he took supreme responsibility for our mistakes, for our flaws, for our errors. Again, he's the guide. He's the model. He's the example. I think it's important to identify and point out that Paul is writing here to a particular uh, cultural dynamic there in first century Roman Empire. Within that context of first century Rome, there was something known as patria potestas, which is Latin for the father's power. The father in the home had absolute power over his wife, over his children. In fact, Bible commentator William Barclay put it like this. Notice how he described it. Under the patria potestas, a father could do anything he liked with his child. He could even sell him into slavery. He could make him work like a laborer on his farm. He even had the legal right to condemn his child to death and carry out the execution. This is first century context. Paul is writing to Roman Christians, Roman Empire fathers who have given their lives to Christ, and he's writing into this context where they had this ultimate patria potestas, father's power. And what is he saying? He's urging upon them this. Listen, that the gospel should be so transforming in your life that the way you live as a father would be radically different than the type of fathers you see in culture. And friends, that's not only true in the first century Rome. That should be true in first century Chattanooga. Would you agree with that? That the gospel transforms our lives as men so profoundly that we are distinctly, radically different in the way we parent and father our children. In fact, if you look at the heading, if you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 3, if you look at the heading that was put there by the translators, it's not in the original text, it describes what this chapter is about. The ESV says, uh, put on the new self. Some translations say, new life in Christ. This is what chapter 3 is about. In fact, notice how chapter 3 begins uh, in the introduction of this section. The first three verses say, if then or since then, both the same meaning, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So what follows then in chapter 3 is all these practical, real-life things of how it should impact our daily lives, in our daily arenas of where we live our lives in the gospel, in this truth of being raised with Jesus Christ. And that dramatically changes the way dads lead their families, dramatically changes the way we father our children. Here's the deal. All Christian fathers, all believing dads, first century and 21st century alike, our priority and our intent is that we would father in such a way that our children come to know the fatherhood of God. That they come to understand what God is like. They ought to see in their human fathers a reflection, imperfect, yes, flawed, yes, but at least a dim reflection of what the heavenly father is like in his strength and in his tenderness, in his wrath and in his mercy, in his exaltation and his condescension, in his wisdom, in his guidance, in his patience. The task of every human Christian father is to be to his children an image of the fatherhood of God. This was a profound point for me in the film that many of us watched together yesterday, and I would encourage you, if you didn't join the 60 of us or so that watched that film yesterday, go see it. You missed your chance to see it for three bucks. It's going to cost you eight bucks to see it. But I encourage you to go see it. And this is one of the profound points it made, that God didn't create mankind and see fathers function and say, hey, I like this idea of fathers. I think I'm going to start calling myself the father. No, God was a father first. The fatherhood of God existed before anything was anything. He was a father to the son. And he created fathers after his fatherhood so that they could display his fatherhood. You see that? And so this is who we're called to be as dad. This is the, the role we're called to take, the role of hopeful fathers. And that leads to the second phrase and the second point, not only the role of hopeful fathers, number two, the responsibility of hopeful fathers. Fathers, that's our role, here's the responsibility. Do not provoke your children. Interestingly, this is a different word than what's translated provoke in Ephesians chapter 6 that we read earlier. That word in Ephesians 6 literally means provoke to anger, inflame to anger. This word here for provoke in Colossians 3.21 actually means uh, to agitate. It means to excite, to exacerbate. It means to bring someone to their wit's end. Fathers are particularly good at doing that, Right? says, fathers, don't agitate your kids. Don't provoke your kids. Don't excite and bring them to their wits' id. In preparation for this message this week, I think Monday or Tuesday, I sent a text to my family. I've got five children. And in that text, I opened myself up for personal criticism and correction. And I said, can you share with me areas in my own life as your dad or maybe in other dads you've seen and you're familiar with, provocation, agitation that brings discouragement. I won't share with you everything they shared with me. But I will share with you that, here's the thing, we could literally be here all day long with a dry erase board writing down things that dads do to agitate their kids that discourage them. Would you agree with that? It's almost limitless. But I've 
distilled these down really into three, three provoking patterns, if you will, that exist in dads. Three categories of how dads provoke their children to be discouraged. First of all, there's a demanding dad. Demanding dad. Demanding dads push their kids to be number one. Demanding dad push their kids to excel at everything they do. Demanding dads tend to measure their own value on the successes of their children. If my kids perform well, well, it indicates how good of a dad I am. And this can be in the realm of athletics, in academics, in popularity, vocationally. Demanding dads are often characterized by injustice. Here's what's amazing about children. They have a keen sense of fairness, right? How many kids have said, that's not fair? Now, they may be misguided in their assessment of whether or not it's fair, but they have a keen sense of what is just and what is unjust. They have a keen sense of what is fair and what is unfair. And so demanding dads, they can show favoritism to one child over another between siblings. Demanding dads also manifest themselves with unfair comparisons to other people. Why can't you be more like your big brother? Why can't you make grades like your sister? It may even be uh, not as direct. In a more subversive way, they can say, hey, I, I heard Susie scored a 32 on the ACT. What is that? It's comparison. Demanding dads rarely rejoice in their children's successes. When a child says, Dad, I was able to do this, here's how demanding dad responds. Rather than congratulating, good job, demanding dad says, well, that probably sets you up to be able to do that. It's never good enough. Nothing will satisfy demanding dad. Demanding dad also seeks to shape their children into this kind of cookie-cutter idea of what he thinks their children should look like and what they should be like, how they should act and function and dress. Here's the thing I've learned with five children. They're all different, right? Parenting approaches, one size does not fit all. They're different. In fact, I love the way theologian John Stott put it in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. He said this, wise parents recognize that not all the non-conforming responses of childhood deserve to be labeled, quote, rebellion. Let me read that again. Wise parents recognize that not all the non-conforming responses of childhood deserve to be labeled rebellion. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say you tell Susie to go get ready for church. She comes out of her room to the living room ready to go, and demanding dad sees that she's got one blue sock on and one yellow sock on. What does demanding dad say? Is that supposed to be some kind of a style? What are you wearing? Go put something else on. And here's the tiny spirit of the child who's expressive and creative that has just been crushed by demanding dad. If you didn't give her specific instructions, wear the same color socks, and she comes out with one blue sock and one yellow sock, well, you're in for an interesting ride. You have a creative little girl on your hands, and it's going to be fun. There are so many adults looking back on their childhood who would say, 
I don't know if I ever pleased my dad. Don't agitate. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged by being demanding dad. Here's another skewed view. Not only demanding dad, but Disney World dad. This is the dad who only wants to be the kid's buddy, but doesn't really want to be the parent. He's the playmate to his children. The one who spoils the kid. The one who wants to be known as the fun parent. The one that gets all the laughs. And the basic motivation for this is, because I'll be honest, this is probably where I tend, is to be liked. You want to be liked, especially by your kids. You want your kids to like you. And to Disney World dads, I would say, your kids don't need you to be their friend so much as they need you to be their father. Now, there are certainly overlapping areas of relationship between fathers and friends. Fathers and friends both care for the child. Fathers and friends both support the child. Fathers and friends both listen to the child. But a father has the responsibility as the head of the home to say, uh, the buck stops here. It's altogether appropriate, moms, for you to say, wait till dad gets home. Don't be Disney World dad. In fact, notice what Proverbs 22 says. Proverbs is a treasure trove of parenting wisdom. Verse 15 of chapter 22 says, Folly, foolishness, is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. But when a father's fundamental responsibility as an authoritative parent who drives folly from the heart of the child is replaced with Disney World dad, well, this responsibility is ignored, neglected, and he's rejected his paternal duty. And here's what has to happen. The mom then has to become the disciplinarian in the family. And then she's interpreted by the children as being the mean parent. Moms don't say amen, <laughs> but we've seen it. Moms interpreted as being the no fun parent. Husbands, one of your responsibilities as husband is to protect your wife. And that means protecting your wife from your kids. Here's what I've discovered after being a parent for 28 years, four of my five children are adults, is that the friendship comes. The friendship comes. Don't forsake being father, because in adulthood they become your very best friends. But those who do forsake fatherhood are separated in their adulthood relationships. There's demanding dad, there's Disney World dad, thirdly, distracted dad. Distracted dad. When we let the noise in life take us away from invaluable time with our kids, we become more dedicated to the distractions that pop up. The urgent takes precedence over the important. I told you earlier that these complementary roles that God has designed in men and women for marriage and for the home and for families and even in the church, they can become contradictory because of our sin nature. And we even see this borne out within the curses that were placed upon Adam and every successive woman and placed upon, excuse me, every successive man and upon Eve and every successive woman. You see, the, the curse upon Eve and womanhood was that she would be drawn unwholesomely 
toward the family relationships in a domineering way. That was the curse. You can go back and read in Genesis 3. The curse upon men, however, was different. The curse upon men was that he would be drawn unwholesomely away from the family relationships, primarily towards work. Notice how the Bible puts it in Genesis chapter 3, beginning of verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so what happened is because of the fall, because of the curse, Adam and all mankind since then, work is wearisome. Work is toilsome. Work is demanding. Work is difficult. And what this does is it draws the man unwholesomely away from the family. Now, men, are we supposed to work? Absolutely. We've got to make sure we keep our priorities in check leave the job at the door when we come home. Often our greatest danger, again, is allowing the urgent to distract us from the important. 28 years ago, when our firstborn child was on the way, when Amy was pregnant with Aubrey, we made an investment. We invested in a shoulder-mounted VHS camcorder, right? Some of you guys bought some of these, right? Why? Because we wanted to record every movement of our young child and our children to follow. And we've got stacks of VHS tapes with, that are labeled with their ages and what they're doing in those VHS tapes. Interesting thing about VHS tapes, which I have one, uh, teenagers, this is called a VHS tape, <laughs> is they have this little thing on the back here. There's a tab. After you record your child, your wedding, everybody loves Raymond if you've seen that episode, you remove the tab so you don't record a football game over it, right? Removing this tab protects the recording. It prevents it from being recorded over. You remove that tab. I think this is illustrative of our lives as dads. See, once you record, the tab is removed. You can go back and rehearse in your mind. You can rewind and rewatch, but you can never go back and re-record. You get one shot. You get one chance. It's imprinted on the tape forever. Do not provoke your children. We have this role as hopeful fathers. We have this responsibility to fulfill as hopeful fathers, to not agitate, to not provoke our children. But thirdly, I want us to consider as we move towards a conclusion, the result of hopeful fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This word here for discouraged means to lose heart, to become dispirited, broken in spirit. Sometimes it's used of of a horse who is broken the wrong way and he's lost his spirit, discouraged. This child develops a kind of blank uninterest and a resignation towards life. And I can tell you with nearly two decades of youth ministry, I can spot it quickly in a child. There's just a blanket of discouragement laying over the child 
in their whole demeanor. Don't be the kind of father who discourages, who breaks the spirit, who disheartens your child. And surely it is implied here from this negative result that Christian dads should develop a pattern of fatherhood that produces the opposite of discouragement. And I want you to think from, with me for a moment, what's the opposite of discouragement? I looked it up in a thesaurus, and I read some of the antonyms. That's the opposite word for discouragement. Look at some of the antonyms of discouragement. Happy, inspired, inspirited, supported, confident, reassured. Or look at this last one, hopeful. We've been talking about that, haven't we? We are called as Christian dads to not provoke, agitate, exasperate our children, but to father them in such a way that they are hopeful. Now, if we stopped right here, virtually everything I've shared, you could hear on Dr. Phil next week, right? We can hear Dr. Phil, a psychologist, tell a father, hey, don't provoke your children, and that it's going to lead them to discouragement. There's nothing distinctly Christian about this phrase. You can go pull any child psychology book off of the bookshelf at Barnes & Noble, do those still exist, and you can read it, and they'll tell you the same thing. Fathers, don't provoke your kids. You'll discourage them. But this is a Christian church, and this is a Christian sermon, so we've got to get into the gospel aspect of it, right? How does the gospel transform our lives as Christian fathers. This is not just a parenting TED talk. This is a gospel message. We're going to go back to the introduction of chapter 3. Look at it again with me. If then, or since then, your identity affects your activity. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, we have a much higher aim than worldly parenting ideals. We have a much higher goal for our children. What is the opposite of discouragement? Hope. Hope. But hope in what? Yesterday, I was driving with Amber and Trevor here in the valley on Browns Ferry Road, and I saw one of our There is Hope signs on the side, and I noticed it had been defaced. I said, what? Our sign's been defaced. I pulled over closer to it. In the O of the word hope, somebody had put, Jesus is the answer. I said, oh, good. <laughs> it's not defaced, because that's the truth. This is the hope we're pointing to, right? Jesus is the answer for the world today. Among him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. We're, we're pointing our children to hope in Christ. What often happens is, is we, we have this object of hope before our children. We get them to hope in success. We get them to hope in good grades. Because good grades and high scores on the standardized test will mean a good college. You go to a good college, that's going to give you a good career. You get a good career, that's going to be a good bank account. And this is the object of our hope. Christians, we don't live that way. We don't lead our children to hope in athletics. We're pouring all this energy so that maybe they can play at the next level. It's not our hope. So what is the hope 
We're pointing them to, I believe if you had asked Jesus or you if, if you had asked Paul, what hope should fathers be pointing their children towards? They would say, I want you to be freed from discouragement and be filled with hope not from becoming wealthy or well-known or intellectual or successful, but you would be filled with hope in your heavenly Father. Again, back to the original premise. Earthly fathers have been given to shine forth the character and the nature of the heavenly Father. The question is, with this radical, God-centered view of fatherhood I've just laid out here over the last 30 minutes or so, how do we get there? How do we get there? So many sermons, we hear them, we can nod, we can amen, we can fill out the outline in the back, and then we stuff it in our Bibles, later we clean it out and throw it in the trash because we've forgotten that sermon. Anyway, how do we get there? How do we put feet to this? Well, friends, I don't want this message to just be a rallying cry. I want there to be some, some personal application. So here's what we're going to present to begin with uh, as a launching point. Look at this next slide. Next month, we are going to have a men's breakfast on October 16th. This is going to be the beginning point. And over the course of the next several months, on the second Saturday of the month, I know that October 16th is not the second Saturday, but following that, the second Saturday of the month, we're going to have a men's breakfast, and we'll eat some really good food. And in that time together, for 30 to 45 minutes, I'll be leading a time of discussion and dialogue about biblical masculinity and what that looks like in the home and in the relationships God's given us. We hear a lot about in our culture today toxic masculinity, and no doubt masculinity outside the bounds that God's designed can be toxic. But biblical masculinity is different. True masculinity is not whoever has the deepest voice or the hairiest legs or who can bench press the most. That's not true masculinity. And we're going to talk about what is true biblical masculinity. What does it mean to live out the design that God's created in us as men? And then, Lord willing, uh, coming in January and following, we'll actually have some other groups, degroups, and, and studies to help to foster in us this desire to be godly fathers. So, to pull this off, can't do it by myself. I'm going to need help. So here, quick show of hands, just the men. We don't need any women here, all right? Just the men. Any men here today can fry bacon? Anybody fry bacon? Good, good, okay. See those hands? Just made a mental note. Anybody here can scramble eggs? All right, good, I see that. Here's a tough one, here's a tough one. Anybody here able to make biscuits and gravy? I mean, that's a good one. Anybody make biscuits and gravy? Robert? Oh yeah, Travis, Daryl, good. Okay, we got biscuits and gravy. We got all the bases covered right? If you can't do any of those things, but you can wipe down tables or you can set up chairs, you're on the team. So here's what we're going to have. I know men are simple. We're not going to make you go to the church app and fill it out. We got a clipboard, okay? Very simple, men. You just write your name, your contact number to be on the, the men's breakfast team so that we can begin the process of inspiring and encouraging one another to be the men God's called us to be. Does this make sense? Yeah. So we're going to put this on the front row and um, you can put your name on it. I'll remind you about it at the end. Now, as I close, I have no doubt that by rehearsing over the last several minutes many of the common failures of fathers, that it has dredged up some emotions in some of your hearts. Some emotions and sadness and sense of loss that 
you never had a dad like the scripture portrays a dad should be. Or maybe you're here and you can look at your own role as a father in your family, and there's also a sense of sadness or loss because of your own personal failures. Here's how I want to close. The reality is there is sadness and there is loss when we consider these things, but we have a heavenly father who will swallow up all that sadness. We have a heavenly father who will wrap up in his loving, tender, forgiving arms all that loss. I said earlier, as we began our service, I wanted you to tell each other, I'm a child of God. That may not be true for everybody here. You may not be a child of God. But here's the deal. God offers adoption to everyone. He only has one natural son, Jesus, but he, adop- he offers adoption to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. You can become a child of God. As you're led by the Spirit to believe and trust and cling to Jesus and what he has accomplished through his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection, you can be adopted as a child of God. And that identity will frame how you live out your life. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans 8. He said, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Today, all who trust in Jesus, all who believe in his name and the work he accomplished are adopted children of God. You can be wrapped up in the tender, compassionate, forgiving love of the Heavenly Father. Hope in God. And that leads to my last thought. Our chief aim as Christian fathers is to lead our children to hope in God. By God's grace, we'll be a people who do that.